Welcome to this episode of Another World is Potable. My name is Peter Bloom, and get ready to emancipate your mind and radically expand your imagination as we present all the most exciting and revolutionary possibilities of our times, both locally and globally. I hope you enjoy it, and as always, solidarity today, tomorrow, and forever. Welcome to a new episode of Another World is Potable. This is Peter Bloom, and I'm with an ex- I'm extremely excited about this guest. Um, I'm here with Professor Primavera Kapo, um, the author of the recent book Insurgent Empires, and I think really one of the most important um, voices on thinking about contemporary issues of class, race, and colonialism, both historically and in the present. Um, and I think there's so much that we have an opportunity to talk about, so I'm so glad that you're able to join us, Priya. Happy to be here, Peter. Um, so I think one thing I just wanted to start with um, is, you know, maybe even just very briefly, just so people get to know you a bit better, is maybe share a little bit about, you know, your background and what inspired the work that you do and how you've kind of almost, you know, intellectually and politically came to some of the insights and conclusions that have been so important that you've been able to make. Okay, well, um, my background is quite mixed. Uh, My family moved a lot when I was uh, a child, but I studied uh, college and my first um, graduate degree in India. I went to JNU, which is uh, a famously or notoriously, depending on how you look at it, um, radical oppositional dissenting uh, university campus. And it was there that I really started to think about the links between um, intellectual, scholarly, academic work on the one hand and the world around us on the other. Um, JNU was the kind of place where uh, students did very serious uh, graduate research, but they also were very much encouraged to be part of campaigns, of student movements, of linking up with issues that were of import to wider society. And I think that that's where I started to make the links between um, academic work and, um, if you like, campaigning uh, and activism. I then studied in in the United States, um, and that's where I think I'm more or less formally specialized in the study of empire and post-colonial societies. Um, I started to think um, in in some depth about questions of what the world looked like after the age of empire. Um, And also, again, making connections between empire in the past and the world in which we find ourselves today. The book itself, I think, um, is much more connected to my experiences in Britain. Um, I came to Britain in 2001, uh, to Cambridge, and then in 2006, I started to get more involved with public debates, and I was um, on the BBC uh, discussing Empire with uh, Neil Ferguson and others, and that was a kind of quite uh, famous debate, um, Mm. which then had kind of ramifications uh, for debate around uh, colonialism and Britain's past um, in more generally. And it was then that I started to think uh, about Britain's relationship to empire, the very deep 
imperial amnesia that we still have in this country and the consequences of that amnesia for Britain and how it uh, relates to the rest of the world. And I, I would say that that's the kind of context in which I came to write this particular book. Mm -hmm. I, one of the aspects that I found so fascinating about this book that I think touches on something so, for me, urgent at the moment is how it really takes head on the erasure of non-white and non-Western contributions to our intellectual you know, heritage and mm -hmm. notions of freedom and emancipation and our politics. And the very conception, I, I think at a deeper level, it, it, you kind of gesture in the book of what it means to be human, what it means to be alive. And yeah. I, you know, not to repeat what's in the book, and obviously you can speak about some instances about that, but you know, you're speaking about a particular time in the 19th and 20th, early 20th century, but it's still, that type of amnesia is still so alive today. Um, if I can, I mean, I do a lot of research on technology and yeah. anti-colonial resistance. And yeah. I've been so shocked about how in the West, you know, even within the quote unquote Arab Spring, which was really so innovative in how right. they were using technology, it was almost as if no one wanted to talk about that. They were happy to talk about them as victims, but it's not yes. only as their own liberators, but as someone who had something to teach us. Yes. Um, and you thought even more fully in terms of like the feminist uh, revolutions happening right now in Argentina, these movements that are just so high tech in ways that, you yes. know, even makes Black Lives Matter seem yes. you know, 10 years ago. So I'm wondering, you know, in kind of not just your but intellectually, why do you think this type of amnesia and erasure of, you know, the colonial knowledge and non-white knowledge is just, is so strong? Mm, mm. Well, I mean, it's interesting that you, you raise the question of the Arab Spring, uh, uh, because, I mean, that's a classic instance of resistance and opposition that, you know, was on the ground, that was led by people, that was democratic. And then it was appropriated by the West as though it was a Western idea uh, mm. that uh, was kind of disseminated in the Middle East and people were wanting to be more Western. Um, and I think it's a classic instance of something happening and then it being appropriated and repackaged as something else entirely. Mm. Um, why does this happen? I think that for me, uh, the answer that I give in the book is in part coming from the great uh, Caribbean uh, uh, intellectual uh, C.L.R. James, uh, who talks about the ways in which, uh, you know, in, in many societies, but particularly in Britain, I think, in relation to the empire, um, mythology is the governing principle. So mm -hmm. what, what has happened in Britain, and I think it's true of America and the West more broadly, is that these are societies which have created mythologies in which they see themselves as givers and leaders and bestowers. And the rest of the world is merely passively following in its wake. Now, you can see why this mythology would be useful because it's a way of saying uh, West is best, uh, we know what's right. Uh, Western capitalism is the end of history, uh, you know, to use Fukuyama's term. Um, and the West will teach the rest of the world how to be free and lo and behold, the only in which we can be free is to embrace global capitalism. Mm. So you can see that this is mythology, uh, which on the one hand is very soothing and 
pride giving. On the other hand, it, it has very material purposes. Um, it is about making the world uh, come fully on board with the capitalist project and uh, repurposing all ideas of freedom as somehow uh, having to be given from above to below. And that is what I was really trying to challenge in the book, the idea that freedom can be bestowed on people. Freedom is meaningless unless people oppose and take it into their own hands. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think this mythology whereby freedom is given to us by benign upper classes, by the benign ruling uh, dispensation, by benign Western governments, I think that has to be challenged. And that's partly what the book was trying to do. Hmm. And, and I think one of the important aspects of that as well that I, I've kind of noticed is the ways in which when you look at things that, that are happening, for instance, with the Black Lives Matters uprising in the United States mm-hmm. right now, there's yeah. a complete ways in which there is a notion which, oh, well, this is something spontaneous. And while there's a spontaneity element to it, this is based yeah. on decades of you know, yeah. thinking and intellectual yeah. traditions. And I've been shocked by this, you know, even in a university setting, where on the one hand, the colonial project is very much linked to a sense of scientism, right, an expertise, a notion of inscripting subjects in quantified notions of themselves as part of data and statistics and population control. But when it comes to questions of colonialism or race, it's almost completely from a point of view of let's just take in people's lived experiences, which is important. But it seems that there's another erasure. I mean, has anyone at Cambridge, I mean, I don't want to put you on the spot, has come to you and said, you know, not as someone from India, but as someone who is an expert on this, almost as if you're an expert on biology, come to you and said, help us understand this, help us deconstruct this, help us really connect these dots. I mean, I, I, I find that it's incredible to me that that type of expertise is completely erased. And I think yeah. that's quite important. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, people have asked me, for instance, on why things um, are so different in America and Britain in in relation to Black Lives Matter, because um, whatever you might say about America, um, in Britain, there is this notion that, uh, you know, Black Lives Matter isn't really relevant to Britain. It's an American thing. And people have expressed surprise uh, that Black Lives Matter has had resonance in Britain because, you know, we, the Brits, are not racist in the same way that Americans are racist and so on. And I think that one of the reasons that in America Black Lives Matter has taken off with the strength and power that it has is precisely because of a very long tradition of black organizing of African-American, both kind of intellectual work uh, around racism and anti-racism, but also kind of community organizing. That is less the case in Britain. Uh, You know, we do know that there was um, organizing uh, in black and British Asian communities in the 1970s. There is certainly perhaps a longer tradition of Asian organizing in Britain. But Britain doesn't have the equivalent of a long tradition going back to the days of Frederick Douglass and abolition in America uh, of African-American organizing and intellectual work. And I think that that joining of the dots is absent in Britain. So, Mm -hmm. you know, for one thing, certainly Cambridge, but much of the British university sector is very white in its professoriate, very white, uh, certainly in here uh, in its in its student body. So the idea that you would actually turn to uh, people who are versed in these traditions, people who come from black which I don't. Um, and in fact, we have 
uh, very, very few, vanishingly few black intellectuals uh, at, at Cambridge. Um, so the idea that one should turn to people with expertise, with experience, with understanding of histories of organizing and resistance, I don't think that idea is, is, is particularly salient. Uh, in British intellectual life. So um, we still, I think, have this idea that we, we just need to do a little bit of diversity and inclusion um, and the problem will sort itself out. And I think, you know, I've been quite struck by the ways in which the decolonized campaigns on in British universities um, have been more or less taken to be diversity campaigns. So, you know, you just think, all right, or, you know, yeah, we need to, we need to have a few more black students. We need to have more Asian professors or black professors, and then it's all sorted. Uh, mm. The understanding of decolonization that will require, as something that will require deep and difficult engagement with issues of race and empire, I don't think that that's part of British intellectual discourse yet. It might mm. become that. Um, and it may be that, you know, I've been quite struck by the extent to which uh, BLM in Britain has actually, I think, somewhat shocked uh, people into, an, into acknowledging things that they weren't prepared to acknowledge even six months ago. Mm. I, uh, but I think, I think there's a long way to go. Sorry. Yeah. No, no, I was saying I completely agree. And I think I have been struck by both, you know, coming from the U.S. but living in the U.K., um, I've been struck by everything that you've said and also by the openings that this has provided politically, but also yeah. by the ways in which this has forced a particular type of racism that I think is often under the surface to come to light and mm -hmm. a type of reactionary policy that traditionally can be somewhat, you know, uh, hidden, if you will, or not mm -hmm. completely hidden, but quote unquote softened through, you know, benighted liberalism or soft Toryism. Um, yes. And, you know, if it's all right, you know, I think there's a way in which this speaks to, you know, precisely about something that I have to admit, um, you know, and, and as someone uh, who knows you and, and who loves your work, Sitcher, um, your recent, uh, how can we say it? Do you want to say Twitter controversy? I don't know if that's the right <laughs> word, but like, yeah. I, I, I was very surprised because, you know, and I say this very, very respectfully, like, out of all the things that I've heard you say and write, and if people took them seriously, um, yeah. I would say that what you've written on Twitter, which if you don't mind me reading it is, I mean, you're responding to, a, a, I think, a white supremacist event in a football match. Yes. Um, and you were just saying something very obvious, like, you know, white lives don't matter as white lives, yeah. um, which for me is something that, you know, if you had any engagement or willingness to critically reflect, um, it's, it's quite obvious what you're saying and what you're trying to do. Um, but I was, I thought this was a really interesting well, interesting. I don't know. Perhaps I can say that in my position, I'm sure it wasn't interesting for you. <laughs> I'm sure it's been... Well, actually, it was. It was in its way. It was interesting. But it, this type of reactionary... Yeah. You know, and this desire in order to still... I mean, I, I saw it in many of the comments to you. It was just almost like reframing of you don't get to talk about race. You, you know. Yeah. And, you know, so I wonder if we could kind of... If you'd be willing to talk a little bit about that... Because I thought that was so interesting about how when people often in Britain will say, oh, well, we're not racist like the U.S. But right. It's actually an opening for serious anti-racist resistance and questions of race and empire in a fundamental way. Something as, with all due respect, as, you know, pretty obvious. As, you know, that yeah. Caused such a backlash. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Well, you know, I think you're quite right that it's an interesting episode. Um, I mean, even for me, I've been able to largely detach myself um, and look at it as, you know, as we would as kind of scholars and try to figure out what is going on. And I think there's a number of things to say. I mean, I said, uh, uh, if I recall correctly, white lives don't matter as white lives, uh, meaning quite clearly that it wasn't whiteness uh, that should give lives uh, because we are in a situation where white lives are valued more. And so I was saying, well, that's not the basis on which lives ought to be valued. Um, like you say, I said it not at all thinking it was terribly controversial. Uh, you know, I, I didn't think anybody except for really fringe extremists would question the idea that whiteness should not be the basis on which lives matter. But of course, I was wrong, and it has been horrendous, uh, to say the least. The, um, the the vituperative backlash, not just on social media, but you know, in terms of the most vicious forms of hate mail possible. And what is interesting about the hate mail is that it's coming from two sectors. Uh, clearly, uh, white nationalists in Britain, if we could call them that, um, largely Brexiteers, largely from, you know, the leave, uh, the leave vote base, if you like. And the more significant and more violent backlash from America, from Trump uh, supporters, people who are explicitly, uh, you know, MAGA, Make America Great Again supporters. And what is very clear uh, from the hate mail, which I'm now documenting and putting in, collating into a, a Google document for everyone to look at, is that they simply underscore uh, what you and I already know, that white lives matter is a white supremacist slogan. It's mm -hmm. not about all lives mattering, or it's not just mm -hmm. saying, oh, well, white lives also matter. It is a supremacist slogan. Many of my interlocutors have said, white lives matter more. I mean, they've said it in as many words, uh, or they've said Western lives matter more, um, or they've used, you know, N words and P words and said, X lives don't matter, mm. right? So they're actually in a weird way um, vindicating uh, exactly what I was challenging, uh, and, uh, you know, which, which is the racist banner. It was mm. a racist banner. There is no other way to look at it. When, mm. when players are taking the knee, to honor George Floyd, for you to fly a White Lives uh, Matter banner, that's a racist act. And my White Lives Don't Matter as White Lives tweet was challenging the racist. Uh, mm. Now, of course, what is also interesting is the number of kind of white nationalists and white supremacists who've been very happy to point at me and say, you're the racist, right? So it's almost like they've been dying to take that criticism and turn it back on black and brown people, right? So you are the racist, you are targeting white people. Uh, and that tells you a lot that that sense of rage at having been criticized and wanting to appropriate that criticism and levy it back um, at, at their critics. And, and that's, I think, really, really telling. Um, I mean, I have a lot more to say, but, but I'll pause here. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that, that you know, you raised a, a really strong point about that, that there is really an, a refusal when you, these types of things to come out to actually engage with structural inequalities to engage yeah. with 
these types of yeah. histories. So in a sense, I mean, I've been a, I've kind of seen, you know, these two ends of it. So on the one hand, it's precisely what you said. I mean, it's just kind of very white supremacist and very clear white nationalist aspect. Yeah. But then I think what I've also seen is, is then I see this in Britain a lot more than the US. And I think it, it reflects a very particularized imperial history of, you know, upper class moral legitimization, which, you know, yes. Britain yes. has a very strong vocabulary of, which is, yes. you know, well, if you were white and you said that, yes. you know, obviously, and, and, and what becomes so dangerous about that is I think that white supremacy, when it's done with something like, well, white likes matter more, I think that sounds so unreasonable in our contemporary context with so many people. Where yeah. if someone says something like, well, aren't you just doing the same things? I mean, if you were white and you, yes. said, and you said that. And that, the problem with that is that that is potentially valid in its reasoning, but unsound in its realities. Yes. And it's ways in which I get quite scared about that in terms of how they can take very serious realities and histories and contemporary oppressions and turn yeah. it into a type of reactionary, but we're just trying to be reasonable kind yes. of discourse. And that was yes. very, because I had thought that yeah. that just simply wouldn't, not maybe, I very rarely think of myself as naive in this sense, but I was shocked at yes. how quickly that was, you know, something that you would almost hear in the early 20th century was quickly able to be reactivated again. Yes. I mean, I think you're quite right that, you know, um, a lot of the kind of logical, so-called logical, reasonable arguments have been coming from quarters that don't necessarily identify with white nationalism, who would say things like, well, you know, as a white person, I would not be allowed to say that brown lives don't matter. You get to say that white, white lives don't matter as white lives. Um, and I think what is interesting there, I think, again, it takes us back to how we started this conversation, which is that it has to do with the absence of history. Mm. Right. So, of course, saying white lives matter just as much as black, black lives matter on the face of it is a very reasonable proposition. Um, but it's only when we look at history that we can say actually the two propositions are not the same because white lives already matter, whereas black lives do not matter. Black lives are devalued. So until we get to a point where black lives are, are valued, these two propositions are not equal. Um, they're not equal. Uh, they can only be considered equal if you evacuate history from the picture. I would say that in a, in a curious way, retrograde as the discourse in America is um, and horrible as the white backlash under Trump has been, I think that in America, it's less easy to turn your face away from the reality of realities of having had slavery mm. and having disenfranchised and in a sense, eliminated native peoples mm. uh, in, in very large numbers. Mm. Uh, you know, America is very foundationally based on these two oppressions, the, uh, yes. the oppression of black people as slaves and the genocide of uh, indigenous Americans, Native Americans. You can't turn your face away from it beyond a point. I mean, I've been quite struck also by how some of the Twitter accounts, uh, which have been uh, trolling me, explicitly say, send the blacks back to Africa, uh, push the Native Americans into Mexico. 
like that's that's that at least acknowledges that these two things are part of America's uh, historical reality. Yeah. I think it's much easier to pretend that this is the nation that abolished slavery rather than had slavery. Yes, so you can pretend that you're an abolition, abolitionist nation rather than an enslaving nation. You can pretend you didn't really do very many bad things uh, in the course of empire because everything happened overseas. Mm. Uh, you know, Britain itself didn't really have to stare slavery in the face. I mean, there were slaves in Britain. It, it, they weren't completely absent. Uh, but this is not where plantation slavery took place. This is not where the huge dispossession and massacres of colonialism took place. So pretending that none of this happened and none of this matters, I think in a weird way, is easier in Britain than it is in America. And so my book was also trying to offer a counter history of empire to say, you know, uh, Britain does have a history of engaging with the empire and Britain does have a history of criticizing the empire. Uh, you know, we live in a time when these statues are falling, not that many, but a few. And you'll hear the argument often used in Britain, it's wrong to judge these people by today's standards. Um, but actually, we know that there were people who had problems with slavery. If they didn't, we wouldn't have had abolition at all. Uh, we know that there were people who were critics of colonialism. Mm -hmm. And we know that both uh, anti-slavery and anti-colonial uh, campaigners in Britain uh, were in touch with or engaged with rebellions abroad. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to kind of draw out that hidden strain of British history of being more critical about mm -hmm. oneself, of being more demanding uh, of oneself as a British person, and of being more internationalist, frankly, of engaging uh, with resistance happening elsewhere. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, that's such a good point. I, I think in the US context, especially, you, you touch on something so important, which is, I think, on the one hand, there is a very clear understanding, even among the more right-wing or less, let's say, historically informed, and certainly, you know, among the white nationalists, that race was fundamental, not only in terms of the formation of the country, but mm -hmm. the process of racialization as a means for what it meant to be, quote-unquote, American and what it meant to be a human in America yeah. was really clear. And yeah. in a sense, you know, there's a notion that the US constitution, however limited it is, that there's widespread agreement that it was always an unfinished document and that it's yes. only been through civil rights struggle that it's been even semi-completed. Well, right. I don't think you've had that in Britain. And I think it's also quite important to say that, you know, I think for a lot of the apologists uh, for British empire, but even just in general, there's a sense in which, well, this was really a management process. This was an enterprise. Yes. You know, I mean, if bad things happen, I, you know, we're sorry, but it wasn't yes. our intention. I mean, yes. you know, we gave India trains. So like, what yes. was so problematic about that? Whereas in the U.S., it was a much more visceral experience. I it think was, yeah. what I also find important, though, and, and you touched on this, is that I think in a sense, just as, you know, there was the early 20th century call on socialism, you know, socialism or barbarianism, that, you know, it was existentially a question. You know, this wasn't a question of, which political party would you like in terms of your tax preference? This was, if you don't choose socialism, you're choosing barbarianism. Right. I think increasingly what has been so impressive with the Black Lives Matters uh, uprising and movement, and I think it's one that Britain has for a variety of its histories been trying to 
ignore is the fact that this is an existential question. Like if you do not take seriously the questions of abolitionism, if you do not take seriously the questions of defunding the police, if you do not take seriously the fact that racialized logics not only were the basis for plantation economies, but were actually the very notions that allowed for the management of corporations and the construction of the early 20th century industrial subject, mm-hmm. then you're gonna have an authoritarian state. I mean, yeah. it's, it's Trump or defund. And I think that they've done a good job using this historical moment to make this choice quite stark. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think in Britain, they still see this as a management exercise of empire. And right. I think your book did a great job saying there is actually very strong histories of not just allyship, but serious solidarity. Yeah. And it's that type of solidarity that makes this, you know, from, oh, we shouldn't, you know, empire is a bad idea to this is unfeasible. And not only is it unfeasible, but we're actually on the side of the people who are trying to take freedom into their own hands against you. And that yeah. also gives us the basis for rethinking our own possibilities of freedom. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I think that's the tradition uh, that Britain really needs to recover. Whether it will do that, I don't know. But I think that what I really found, um, I think, personally inspiring and interesting in uh, the work that I did for the book in, in terms of the figures I looked at and the work that they did and the writings that they did, is that there was a way in which they agreed that human beings learn from each other Human beings have the capacity to learn, uh, to appreciate differences, but also to forge common ground. Um, and that forging that common ground isn't just something that you can take for granted. You have to work at it. Mm-hmm. You have to engage with the lives of other people. You have to note the differences between your position and theirs. You have to take into account different histories and then you start to work on common ground. I, I think nowadays there's this idea that, well, you know, if you talk about race, then you're being a little bit racist. Why not just pretend uh, that we don't see color and declare equality? Um, and the trouble with that mode of engagement is that it doesn't take into account that people have very different life experiences. People have very different relationships to class and race and community and that these things matter. Um, whereas, uh, you know, the, the tradition that I excavated in the book, uh, not entirely, but in, in part, uh, was a different tradition of saying, well, hang on a second, you know, what is it like to be a freed slave in 1865? Or what is it like uh, to be uh, an Indian, uh, striking Indian worker in 1919? Uh, and what does it mean for us to be engaging with, let us say, uh, the uprising in Jamaica in 1865 or the uh, uprising of Egyptian peasantry in 1882 uh, or Indian labor um, uprisings in uh, in the 1920s? Uh, what, what, what do these things teach us? What can we learn from them and how can we develop? Uh, transnational solidarities? The, the point being that you can't just say, well, all people are equal and that's it. Uh, you have to do some difficult, hard work um, and then come to a point where you can develop uh, alliances and solidarities. And there's that, that difference, I think, uh, really needs to be made more clear in, in British public discourse today. And I would be interested in, in drawing on something because, you know, you're not only a great historian and theoretical thinker, but... Um, but also, I mean, a literary theorist. And, and the Twitter thing made me think about something. And I forget what article I read in this that you talked about this, but 
briefly, but, you know, there's almost a can't win situation when it comes to British political discourse or public discourse when it comes to race and empire, which is on the one hand, when you try to write a 500 page book about it, you know, it might get some good reviews in Guardian and stuff, but people are saying, yeah. oh, well, I don't want to read that. So you say, right. okay, I'm going to write a 32 character Twitter. And they said, right. no, that's, you have to be more subtle. And yeah. I found this interesting, both one, in terms of the epistemic conditions of how things like social media is reconfiguring race and responsibility. And particularly yeah. around under neoliberalism, you know, there's this whole kind of discourse about we have to be individualized, responsible for structural economic conditions. Yes. But in this case, this was something clearly in which, you know, you just written this massive book that's very brilliant, but is very complex about these issues that have serious time things. And, you know, a lot of people did read it, but, you know, you then said, okay, well, you know, if this is a way I can engage in public discourse. And they were saying, you're not subtle enough. And, right. you know, you have a problem, we have a problem. And it's like, they took no, I mean, it seems like there's a discourse of personal responsibility around everything, except yeah. when it comes to white demands to be responsible for their own engagement yeah. around race yeah. and empire. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I think that's that's very well put. Uh, that there was no responsibility for reading, right? Uh, so no responsibility for interpretation. That all the work uh, has to be done by the person saying something, and there is no taking of personal responsibility. But I think you you're touching on something bigger here, which I think we need to grapple with uh, in the era of Trump and Modi and Brexit and so on. Uh, Bolsonaro, the rise of the kind of global authoritarian right wing, which is the ways in which anti-intellectualism is fundamental to it. Okay, mm -hmm. so much of the attack on me was not so much an attack on me, even though it was couched in very personal terms. Mm -hmm. It was an attack on universities. It was an attack on intellectual work. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and as you said, you're damned if you do your damn. So you're damned if you write a 600 page book, which is which is considered too difficult. Mm -hmm. And you're damned if you write a 240 character tweet, which is not nuanced enough. Right. So you can never get it right. Uh, uh, you know, I, I don't I don't know what the perfect genre that they're after is, but I suspect there isn't one. Mm. I think the argument is not about genre, but saying you should not be dealing with ideas. You should mm. not be doing interpretation. You should not be doing history. You should not be doing critical work. I mean, a lot of the less rude emails that were sent to me mm. uh, were long emails railing against what they called critical race studies. I mean, I've never claimed to be doing critical race studies, right? Uh, but somewhere along the line, they've come up with the idea that, uh, you know, the tweet about uh, abolishing whiteness is connected to critical race studies. Mm. And perhaps it is in, in some ways. Mm. Um, and they've taken the opportunity in their emails to rail against cultural, I'm sorry, uh, uh, critical race studies, and then what they call cultural Marxism. Mm. Mm. And I think we are, we must grapple with this problem on the one hand of being charged with being elitist, mm. uh, simply by virtue of working with ideas. And on the other hand, being charged with uh, not being accessible enough. Mm. Uh, and no matter what we say, uh, we won't win because it's either too nuanced or not nuanced enough.
Mm-hmm. And it's a problem. And I think we as a kind of sector, and I mean here academics, uh, intellectuals, higher education, mm-hmm. teachers, what do we do? How, how do we deal with the fact that attacks on intellectual life are fundamental mm-hmm. to the, the present dispensation? Mm-hmm. And, and I wonder how this touches on something that um, I've experienced, I think, to a much lesser level, but, you know, relates to this, which is ways in which they take particular critiques uh, potentially radical perspectives, quote unquote. And they frame them in such a way that you're almost forced to position yourself as non-provocative and just wanting to be involved in a kind of discussion of liberal inclusion. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. cultural Marxism is a perfect thing. I mean, I, I'm, you know, I, I don't want to put myself out here as a cultural Marxist, but I mean, you know, <laughs> I have, that is close to what I do. And when I hear people on Fox News say things like, cultural Marxists are trying to change how people think. I'm like, yes, that's exactly right. what I'm trying right. to do. Like right. I'm trying to dismantle the structures of exploitation and race and empire that has fundamentally shaped how we understand ourselves and relate to each other. Yes, right. that's what I want to do. If a college, if university comes to my thing, I hope to provoke them into thinking differently. But yeah. you're immediately, or I found in the US, this is when people are like, you know, the deep state and you're like, yes, no, I do think, I mean, I, I don't want to be controversial, my, but I think Hillary Clinton is a war criminal. I think the CIA and the NSA do form a deep state that is very dangerous and has right. blown other things. But what they've done is, you know, and I, and I said this kind of at the beginning, but, you know, there's a certain joke in that if people took the time to actually read your work, I mean, this tweet, I mean, it's the least profound. I mean, you're actually arguing for not just a positive, if I, if I can be this, solidarity, but dismantling the very basis, which is, you know, linked to race and empire of how we know what we know and do what we do, right? So um, if the people read your work, it would mean that, you know, the entire institutions where we teach would have to be reorganized. The entire ways we live would have to be. So they're kind of putting you in a a position, and I I feel myself in this, where you are kind of, again, damned if you do, damned if you, because you kind of do want to say, yes, I mean to be provocative. But right. you're not allowed to be in a certain sense. Right, right, right. I mean, I think the the, the thing here that is interesting uh, is, you know, the call to abolish whiteness, as you will know, doesn't come from me. It mm-hmm. comes from scholars who are in a sense of, of a white background themselves. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, ab- uh, abolish whiteness is a phrase used by uh, Noel Ignatiev, who has, you know, who did quite interesting work on how race and class were intimately linked Mm. um, and how race was used to divide class solidarities in ways that we've seen repeat themselves uh, in Brexit uh, or in the Trump phenomenon where uh, a so-called white working class has been urged to throw its loyalties against people of color, against Mm. immigrants, against foreigners and so on. and so on the one hand, one is struck by, you know, how old the call to abolish whiteness uh, is. Uh, whiteness understood not as individual people, but as a structure through which capitalism and exploitation operates. Uh, mm-hmm. And to me, that is pretty uncontroversial. Mm-hmm. I think that one of the more moving, uh, if you like, uh, aspects of uh the ways in which whiteness is talked about now is you will get people saying, well, I'm really poor and I'm white. Uh, how dare you say I'm privileged? And the work that it takes to explain that, yes, you are exploited 
you are oppressed, but by virtue of being poor, not by virtue of being white. Mm-hmm. And I think, again, where the anti-intellectual discourse has been very successful is in convincing people uh, that their white identity is responsible for their oppression rather than their class position. Mm. And that has been enormously successful in ways that are deeply depressing, mm. uh, that, you know, you would think that people could see that it was the boss class, it was the uh, factory owners, that it is the mm. politicians mm. who are manifestly impoverishing people and pushing them into untenable, precarious Mm -hmm. Uh, positions. And yet, it's easier to blame Black people or immigrants. Mm -hmm. And I think also connected to that is the ways in which there's a real profound irony that when you say things like abolish whiteness, right, it can open a conversation of saying, yes, whiteness is a social construction. And it was a social construction that was used for very specific economic and political purposes. But let's say that, you know, you, you identify with whiteness and you identify being white, like, you know, even with your privilege, quote unquote, that you've gotten from that, how it's, how's that worked out for you? Whereas right. if you actually abolish whiteness and thought about a different type of solidarity, a different type of yes. network, what could yes. you gain from that? And I think yeah. what's kind of happened is that there's a, on the one hand, a scapegoating, but there's something also about the ways in which historical amnesia is used in order to make people say, this is all I have. Yes. Like if I let go of this, it's done. And, you know, so in a sense, I think not that it's, you know, uh, you know, Black Lives Matter responsibility or activism, but there is a certain ways in which we also need to bring this a bit to be like, you got a bad deal. Like, yes, you know, and there's a better deal things. If you abolish whiteness, there's a better deal available because you got a bad one. Um, Yes. But again, you know, I think I think that the the the, the narrative, and again, we are back in the terrain of mythology. Mm-hmm. The narrative that the only choice is between giving up whiteness and letting black people rule you, or retaining whiteness and keeping blacks in their place. That these are the only two options, and I think that that very very attenuated, impoverished narrative has taken hold in ways that I think we have. Um, our work cut out for us. How do we explain and show that that is a false narrative, uh, mm-hmm. that the, the option is abolishing structures of dominance, whether racial or whether class mm-hmm. uh, or caste, uh, as I have repeatedly emphasized in relation to my own background as an upper caste Indian woman? How do we show that abolishing structures of domination and oppression uh, is a win-win for everybody but the one percent. And I I, I just, I think we have to start thinking about more creative ways of getting this alternative story out because I don't think we've succeeded. I I don't think all our academic work, all our discussions, all our social media presence, I don't think we have you know, being successful. Now, partly this is because we don't own the mm. media. Mm. We don't own the tabloids. We don't own, mm. uh, uh, you know, uh, television stations. Mm. So partly it's a naive thing to say, because no matter how hard we work on the narrative, on an alternative narrative, we don't really have the means of disseminating it. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think we have to think about how we have we have to. Otherwise, I think uh, all we're left with is giving in to an mm-hmm. authoritarian right wing dispensation uh, mm-hmm. across the world. And I think that that's that's looking very bad uh, for everybody. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I like I said, you know, I, I feel like there's so much we could talk about, but I really uh, want to thank you so much, Priya, for being on the show. I mean, another world is possible and you are such a huge part of that. And, you know, thank you. It's been amazing to have you on. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Another World is Potable. My name is Peter Bloom, and remember until next time, another world is not only possible, but happening right now.